crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Noctegal. Thank you very much for joining me today on June 16th. Got a few things to get through on today's program. I had the privilege of going to a symposium at the Khan Theatre here in Jerusalem earlier last week, and I have some uh, recordings of that that I'm going to play for you. It was about the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism, the media, BDS, and celebrated bigotry. It was put on by Camera, a uh, media, media monitoring group um, that is devoted to promoting accuracy and balanced coverage of Israel and the Middle East. There was numerous speakers that, that attended that and gave lectures, brief lectures, and, and took comments about how uh, anti-Semitism is reaching the mainstream across the Western world in particular, in particular the United States. And so I'm going to talk about that on the second half of today's show. So please listen out for that. Before I get to that, there's just a couple of other things I would like to cover with you. Firstly is you can now sign up for the new Watch Jerusalem magazine. This is going to be a 32 full-color magazine that's printed uh, about 10 times a year and sent out uh, across the world to you. If you would like to order your free subscription of that, you can go to Watch Jerusalem and hit the literature tab up there on the top and go to the magazine tab and uh, sign up for that. The first issue of that will come around in September. So we're looking forward to producing that magazine over the next coming uh, weeks and a couple of months before it goes to print. I'd also like to update you on a little bit of content that went up on the Watch Jerusalem site this week. Uh, one of the articles that went up was about the Hezekiah Bulla. This is a brand new article, of course, the Hezekiah Bulla, or seal impression of the king uh, that lived 2,700 years ago during the time of the prophet Isaiah. There's been lots written about its discovery. And this article written by Christopher Reams is new, and it goes through a, a discussion that you probably haven't read before about the Buller itself. So if you're interested in this, uh, the only seal impression of a biblical king ever discovered in a controlled scientific excavation here in Israel, then go ahead and read this. It also talks about the significance of the certain images on the Buller as well. So please go ahead and read that article. It's entitled, Analysis, the Hezekiah Buller. A couple of comments that came in during the week, I'll read for you now. One of these, it says, I wanted to, uh, I wanted you to know that I listen to your radio broadcast faithfully. It imports me, uh, informs me, sorry, of, of course, but I have full respect and trust in the content and how it's presented. Thanks for making a difference in my life. Another one, I enjoyed your program so much and in ways helps me to choose Jerusalem by learning about this eternal city. Thank you. For all you do, and looking forward to you being more busy with this magazine. Shalom, keep up the good work. There's other couple of comments that came in as well regarding Christopher Reams's writing uh, on the archaeology and uh, his program from two weeks ago, and I'll leave them for him to comment on in the future. 
Before I get to the anti-Semitism material, which I definitely want you to listen to, I have to talk about the attacks that took place on Thursday in the Gulf of Oman. This is an t- area just outside the Strait of Hormuz. Strait of Hormuz is about 22 miles across. This is a narrow choke point for 30% of the seaborne oil of the world comes through the Pers- out of the Persian Gulf through this choke point. And although it's 20 miles, 20 plus miles across, there's it's actually quite narrow. I think one or two miles from where the ships actually pass. They don't, they can't actually pass. It's just so large through this whole 20 mile uh, width, um, this strait. And so it's only, it's actually quite narrow. And so this has always been a very uh, volatile area, just because uh, whoever stops that. Uh, gateway or who can jeopardize the trade of oil out of there the transit of oil through this gateway can do can have uh, uh, can make sure there's a serious impact on the global economy those nations that don't have oil that are relying upon oil from the middle east and even those like the united states that are declaring how great they are with their so-called uh, oil independency they have right now because they've become one of the the greatest or the greatest um, uh, producers of oil, they will be affected too. If you're in the United States listening to this, you're not going to escape what happens at the Strait of Hormuz or just outside the Strait of Hormuz. If you see an increase in the price of oil, as we did, jumping 4% just on Thursday, those those no, the knock-on effect of that will affect oil that is pumped in the United States also. That will be passed on to the U.S. consumer also. And so everyone is affected across the world by oil prices. And what happened on Thursday was there were uh, two ships that were attacked that by mines. These are magnetic mines that are attached to the side or the hull of a ship and then detonated sometime later. There's a couple of reports that came in early in the morning around 6.30 to 7 o'clock of two ships uh, that were two tankers that were targeted. And then shortly thereafter, the U.S. Navy was alerted to this uh, and the U.S. Navy was called in to rescue some of the crews uh, of these ships as well. And um, while the ships didn't sink, this the footage of some of the of an exploding or not exploding a tanker on fire in the Middle East in this, this waterway of the Gulf of Oman, just on the outside of the Strait of Hormuz was uh, was stunning to see. If you haven't seen that, I suggest you just drop over to watchjerusalem.co.il and you'll see an article that I wrote earlier on in the week, uh, last week on Friday, just a day after it happened. We have some footage there inside that article of the of the, the aftermath of this attack. We also have some footage that was put out by the U.S. Navy that shows a boat, one of these fast attack boats of the Iranians. It's definitely an Iranian boat with uh, uh, fighters or members of the Iranian military on it, the Iranian Navy, and they are trying to detach, it looks like, a mine that did not go off on one of these boats. You can see from the pictures that came out later, the location of a detonated mine on the side of the hull of this ship. And then you also see it further up on the ship, perhaps 30 meters, 40 meters away, an undetonated mine, a magnetic mine that's still stuck to the side that the Iranians have since come and removed. And so here we have, uh, and, and anyone that is, that is uh, looking at this uh, knows it's most likely the Iranians. The, um, the President of the United States has said that it's the Iranians. Mike Pompeo came out, the Secretary of State, and gave a statement saying that it was the Iranians and it fits what they've been doing over the past month 
in the Persian Gulf and just on the outside in the Gulf of Oman as well. The United Kingdom said they came out and believed it was uh, the Iranians as well, which was surprising because generally they hold back their cards a little bit closer to their chest. Um, but maybe it's a sign that they're on the way out from Brexit finally and they're deciding now to have their own independent foreign policy. Europe has generally, France, Germany have not come out and said it was Iran, but the UK is breaking from them and saying that, it, yes, it was Iran. Then you also have Saudi Arabia saying today that it was Iran. And what's interesting about this is that a number of these countries like Saudi Arabia and the UK did not say that the earlier attack last month in a very similar location to this against four oil tankers was Iran. They didn't even mention that. And now they're coming on saying it definitely was, which adds credibility to the fact that they know that there is proof that this was an Iranian attack, an Iranian attack on tankers coming out of the Persian Gulf in April. Iran said that they would do as much. They said that if, if the United States stops their oil from getting to market, if the financial sanctions on the oil industry, the hydrocarbon industry inside Iran, which accounts for 70% of uh, Iranian uh, exports, then if that is the case, if the United States does that, that it is not going to allow other nations to export its their oil out of there. And so there have been a number of attacks. We spoke about the one that took place back in May, May 12th, was that attack where four tankers uh, outside the Gulf of Oman were hit by mines. And they were, they were mines that were placed very specifically on the ships underneath the water in locations which not, would not jeopardize the crew, which would not render the, 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 the boats inoperable and would ensure there was no leaks or spill of their content. And so as the, as the study into that attack came out and was presented towards the United Nations, the nations that put that forward came and said that it must have been a state actor because they knew exactly what they were doing. It probably involved fast attack boats bringing naval di divers to uh, one of these ships or these four ships, and they were at anchor just outside a port from the UAE along with 200 other ships, and yet these specific ones were targeted. They were owned, well, they had cargo in them from Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which are two of the main adversaries of the Iranians that are fighting them in other places in the Middle East. And so the Iranians decided that they were going to ratchet up the situation by attacking these, um, these tankers in May. And then two days after that, we saw one of the Iranians' uh, proxies, the Houthis, which work out of Yemen, northern Yemen, fly five drones and take out two pumping stations on the main east-west pipeline that can transport five million barrels per day across Saudi Arabia from where all the oil is in eastern Saudi Arabia in the Persian Gulf all the way across to western Saudi Arabia and beyond offloaded at Yanub, I think it is, or Yanbu, something like that, a coastal town, a port city on the Red Sea. And then they can be put in ships and then piped and then transited up to the Suez Canal, uh, up into the southern Mediterranean, to Europe and elsewhere. And this is kind of Saudi Arabia built this because they knew, they knew that Iran does hold the power to shut out oil transport uh, from the Persian Gulf through the Strait of Hormuz. Iran's bought, Iran is the nation that borders the northern part of that strategic gateway of the Strait of Hormuz. And so they knew that we need to come up with a backup plan. What about if we'd see Iran try to stop the tankers coming through? 
Maybe they blow up a few. They've done it before. What if that happens again? And so they constructed this pipeline to ensure that if that happens, in the event that that happens, they can at least put 5 million barrels, 6 million barrels of oil per day, I think it's about half of what they do right now though, um, into the market by ensuring that they can access the middle central part of the Red Sea where Iran doesn't have at this moment uh, any of its proxies, any of its militias that it can order to attack uh, uh, vessels carrying oil. But we did see two days after the attack that took place uh, in uh, back in May, two days after that attack on the four tankers, this pumping station be shut down for a number of days from being able to pump oil across as a sign that Iran, Iran can hold the, the Middle East oil nations, oil-producing nations to ransom if they so desire. And so there was that attack... Everything dies down, and a month later, what do we have? We have a ratcheting up uh, in a seri- in a, another attack where this time you do have two massive tankers on fire. We didn't see them on fire the first time around. Iran is upping the ante here. These are signs to the world and to the United States that Iran is not backing down. Definitely not yet. The same day that this attack took place, Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister of uh, Japan, he was meeting with the Ayatollah. I just listened to his interview. He won't play it because it's in uh, Farsi. (laughs) Uh, So it wouldn't be too helpful for most of our audience. Um, But there he is talking to uh, Shinzo Abe, talking about Mr. Trump, saying that even though you have brought a message from Mr. Trump to me, that's what Shinzo Abe did. He met with Mr. Trump last month in Japan. And Mr. Trump asked him to see if uh, Iran would be willing to negotiate. He had a message uh, that he brought with him from Mr. Trump. And then the Ayatollah said, no way. No way are we going to negotiate. No way are we going to sit down with Mr. Trump. And there was he's got about three or four minutes that his uh, memory published. Uh, the Middle East Institute uh, for Research and something. They do a wonderful job, memory does, of, of translating a lot of these... Uh, um, a lot of these reports from the Arabic media about what's happening in the Middle East. Anyway, they translated this, and, and you can you can see how dogmatic the Ayatollah is. He is not backing down. Even though Iran's economy is in the worst position it's been in in 40 years, Iran's a nation with 80 million people. There's a lot of people suffering right now because of the choices of the Iranian regime, and there's a lot of Iranians that are very upset, that are rioting, that are trying to do as much as they can to try and stop the Iranian regime from what they're doing. They are Iranians that, that um, the rest of the world, uh, many in the rest of the world are supporting. But the, the Iranian regime is not going back, is not going back. And the same day he's meeting with the Japanese prime minister, we have these attacks that take place, basically saying, um, no, we're not going to negotiate and look what we can do. We're not backing down. We're not backing down yet. And if you don't believe that Iran could actually uh, jeopardize trade through here, everyone is is very uh, preoccupied by the fact the United States has their has the fifth fleet there in the Persian Gulf. It has a tanker, uh, not a tanker, a uh, aircraft carrier strike group. Certainly, the United States has the ability, if it wants to, to take out the Iranian Navy if it wants to do that. And some are calling for that to happen. 
that's what uh, Lindsey Graham said, I think it was today, one of the senators um, in the United States, I believe from South Carolina or Georgia, I'm not exactly sure, somewhere there in the Southeast. Uh, he talked about for the, for the U.S. to just, just Mr. Trump, to just go take out their Navy. Just do it. That's what it's going to need to stop them. And even Melanie Phillips, if I can just pull up this article, uh, Melanie Phillips wrote about this this week, uh, if I have this article here. She says this at the very end of her article. It's hard to see how the Iranian regime can be stopped without some type or some kind of military action being taken against it. Those like Britain and the European Union who believe that is unthinkable and can best be avoided by the, avoided by the Obama deal are wrong. Failing to neutralize Iran will merely mean that, a few years down the road, the West will be menaced, not just by Hezbollah terrorism, but by a nuclear Iranian enemy bent on the annihilation of Israel and the destruction of the West. <laughs> That's how Melanie Phillips finishes her piece that she wrote for the Jewish uh, News Service, or News Syndicate it might be, JNS, uh, a couple of days ago, June 13th. But this is the new reality in the Middle East. 40 years on from the Iranian Islamic Revolution. Sorry, they don't call it the Iranian Revolution. They call it the Islamic Revolution over there because that's what they're about. It's not just about something that takes place in Iran. They want to push the Islamic Revolution to take place firstly over the Middle East and then elsewhere in the world. And they're going to start by using the power that they have. They, the power that they have over these strategic choke points, oil choke points in the Middle East. This is what Anthony H. Kordsman, an analyst, uh, an analyst, sorry, for the Center of Strategic and International Studies, wrote a couple days ago about Iran's capabilities. So he said this, quote, Iran also does not have to launch a major war. It can conduct sporadic, low-level attacks that do not necessarily provoke a major U.S. or Arab reaction, but create sudden risk premiums in petroleum prices and the equivalent of a war of attrition. Tankers inherently vulnerable to relatively small anti-ship missiles and unmanned combat aerial vehicles and attacked by submersibles and radio-controlled small craft filled with high explosives. Iran can plant smart mines in the bottom of tanker routes and can detect that can detect large tankers and home in on them and be set to arm at widely spaced intervals. These methods of hybrid attack can be carried out by individual ships that are not part of Iran's armed forces, that do not have Iranian flags or operators wearing Iranian uniforms, and that cannot be directly tied to, to actions by the Iranian government. We just need to understand that the Iranians are the best in the, wor in the world at doing this. They have been training for this for years. With all their different proxy organizations that have the, the weapons and the know-how to, uh, to jeopardize trade through these narrow choke points. I mean, you can look over their series of drills that, the, that they've had over the past few years, the IRGC, the Navy, and others. And where have they been drilling? Yes, they've been doing their drills in the Persian Gulf, inside the Persian Gulf, or the Arabian Gulf, if you're from Saudi Arabia. That's what they've been, they've been drilling there. But they've also said... Well, our power is not just about 
inside the Persian Gulf. We need to be extended all the way out into the Indian Ocean. And even the Shah of Iran said that back in the 70s before he was removed from power. We want to project our power out of the Persian Gulf. And so that's where they train. Right now they have an anti-piracy mission, if you can believe that, off the coast of Somalia. Does Iran really care about its ships or protecting others from piracy? Or are they there ready and uh, ready to act if they need to? Uh, outside the Horn of Africa and the, the Bab el-Mandab, the Gate of Tears, there at the southern end uh, of the Red Sea. Another narrow choke point where oil passes through, where Iranians have a vested interest of controlling. Iran is set up to do this. They have uh, all, the, all the, um, the drones, the unmanned drones. What's interesting is apparently there was another drone that was uh, seen, an American drone that was almost shot out of the sky by the Iranians. That's not really being reported. But this drone was there uh, watching. This drone was watching the Iranians come and place these mines early in the morning on June 14th on these two ships. And there was a surface-to-air missile, a SAM, that was fired by the Iranians at the American drone. I forget what type of drone it's called, but it, it's got a great name, but I've forgotten what it is, but it missed. And so they, they've been practicing with their missiles. They have their drones. They just did their Towards Jerusalem uh, uh, drill in the Persian Gulf and just outside with 50 drones at once, packing a payload. And then they have these naval mines. Then they have the fast attack boats. And they have these fast attack boats are fast. They're the same attack boats that are used on James Bond films because they're that fast. And they are very difficult to, uh, to hit because unless you've got, I guess, like a helicopter or something. Um, an attack helicopter is probably the best way of taking them out. But they have a fleet of these, these little ships, these little boats, fast attack boats, that can easily go after these tankers. Iran is not going to go after the U.S. Navy toe-to-toe. They don't need to. They just need to change people's calculus, change the calculus of the nations exporting oil out of the Gulf of, uh, out of the Persian Gulf through the Gulf of Oman. That's what they need to do already now. We have seen a couple of uh, shipping companies suspend their operations through the Persian Gulf. We also have seen over the past couple of days a 10% increase in insurance premiums on these ships with cargoes coming through the Persian Gulf. Don't think that those little, those price, uh, a 10% increase in insurance isn't going to be passed on to the consumer. It will be. It always is. And these are, what's happened? Two ships? Two ships were targeted? That's it? That's it? There's hundreds and hundreds that come out each day through this choke point. If the global oil price and the insurance premiums are impacted by attacking just two tankers in the Gulf of Oman, what will happen if Iran actually mobilizes its forces to do a larger, perhaps simultaneous attack on all the geographic areas that it has control over in the southern Red Sea, in the middle of the Red Sea, and then inside the Persian Gulf, in the Gulf of Oman, all of these areas. If Iran halts the maritime traffic for weeks or even a couple of days, and causes major delays, the oil prices are going to soar and there'll be heavy damage done to the global economy. Now, the U.S. hopes 
that such an eventuality will never take place. They're trying to put sanctions on the Iran's oil sector to compel them to change its behavior, to come back and negotiate. But that's not going to happen. Even if, if, even if they might negotiate for a bit, we know that Iran will not be moderated. Iran has set its course. The fundamental nature of the Iranian regime tells us that. Bible prophecy also tells us that, that Iran will not moderate, even if the United States is putting pressure on it. As far back as December 1994, the Watch Jerusalem editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, he speculated that an attack on global oil supplies by Iran would have huge ramifications, and that that attack on global oil supplies by Iran would actually help trigger the collapse of Western world's, uh, the Western world's weak uh, currencies, as he wrote. And then he talked about how that would actually force Europe to finally get its act together, to finally unite. And this event is something that is prophesied in your Bible. We go often to this scripture in, in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 12, uh, sorry, 11 verse 40, which says this, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. The king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. That's Daniel 11 and verse 40. And it says there at the time of the end, if you believe the Bible, this is something for at the time of the end. Even if you believe the book of Daniel was written after the fact, like lots of people do, that was written sometime in the second century, this is still for the time of the end. This was, did not play out anciently. This was not about the Seleucid, the Ptolemaic empires, the ancient king of the south and the ancient king of the north. This is at the time of the end. We have a different king of the south, a different king of the north. And for 30 years, we've talked about Iran being this king of the south that is and has the ability to push, confront uh, the king of the north, Europe. That's what they're going to do. And Iran's control over the oil uh, supply from the Middle East, with its hand on the spigot, its hand on the tap, to decide when it comes out and when it doesn't, is going to be a part of that push. Is going to be a part of that supreme push that motivates Europe to finally act. If you want to understand why we focus on these tankers that are being attacked by Iran uh, this past week, or the ones that were attacked a month earlier, you need to really understand the, the part that Iran plays in biblical prophecy. Iran's name isn't mentioned there. Persia's mentioned. Uh, but this king of the south is mentioned in Daniel chapter 11, and it talks about how this is the one of the first things to take place that leads to the final war. It's Iran's push. And how can Iran push right now? What power does it have? Well, we're witnessing the power it has by the attacks on these tankers. If you'd like to understand more, I really do uh, want you to go ahead and read our book. It's entitled The King of the South. It details these prophecies about Iran quite clearly. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss uh, this latest symposium and the shocking uptick in anti-Semitic acts across the world. This is Watch Jerusalem. 
where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. For the second half of today's show, we're going to just briefly go over some of the content that was brought forward at this symposium this past week here in Jerusalem, the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism, put on by a camera. And um, I'm just going to give you a couple of quotes, a couple of sound clips from some of the speakers. The first that we'll hear from is David Hazoni. He's the executive director of the Israel Innovation Fund. You've probably uh, heard of him before. He, he moderated the discussion, and he also set up the evening by going through a small report that was produced by Ami Horowitz, uh, a on-the-ground reporter in the United States, when he attended a conference on Palestine at a couple of big universities uh, in North Carolina. And so I'm going to pass it over to him, David Hazoni. The two very important universities, the University of North Carolina and Duke University, held a joint conference about Palestine. The purpose of the conference was apparently to have two universities, because that two is a lot better than one, attacking Israel faculty, students, entertainers, and whitewashing Hamas. Uh, Ami Horowitz went there, kind of undercover, and prepared this report. I'm Ami Horowitz, and I'm here on the campus of the University of North Carolina, where UNC and Duke are holding a joint conference on the conflict in Gaza. So I came here to get a sense of the perspectives of the people attending the conference. This was a major conference with hundreds of students, professors, and administrators who spent a weekend bashing Israel and whitewashing the terrorist organization, Hamas. If it only stopped there. This is a professor who I asked about her views on the spate of attacks in New York by black teens on Jews and synagogues. Blacks have a lot of also reason to be angry at Jews now. The conference wouldn't allow me to film inside, so my sound guy set me up with a hidden mic. With very little prodding, the veneer of being anti-Israel in an effort to hide their hatred of Jews was easily scratched away and devolved into open anti-Semitism. I first asked them about the most powerful modern anti-Semitic trope. Does Jewish money control U.S. government policy? U.S. government yeah. policy? Oh, yeah. absolutely. You guys, not you guys. Jewish yeah. lobbyists are very rich. The Jewish lobby is influencing our government and how that's changing U.S. policy. That's yeah, kind of why I'm historically known wow. for everyone. Yeah, with you on that one. <laughs> They're influencing our politics. You know, the and the money rules the world. Yeah. No, meaning like um, makes the decisions. I appreciate yeah. your courage. Oh, this is interesting. What you are doing, right? Yeah. 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 Impressive. I'm Jewish. I don't know. Is yeah, it... I I could already tell. You didn't have to tell me. <laughs> yeah. I don't take offense to that yeah. at all. No, no. I mean, I appreciate people who are questioning their own background. Look at the treatment of Ethiopian Jews, right? Jews that are supposedly in the club, but they're Ethiopian, they're black, they're refugees who uh, come to Israel, assuming it's, you know, it's a Jewish state, have actually been sterilized in the past. Or you You're telling me that the, I don't know, the yeah. Jewish government sterilized Ethiopian Jews mm -hmm. coming into Israel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And then the featured entertainment for the event came on stage. He proceeded to, well, let's let the video do the talking. Antisemitism, yeah, okay. This is my introduction. I know it sounds R&B stuff, but don't, don't, don't think of uh, Rihanna when you sing it. Think of, um, not, don't think of Beyonce, think of Mel Gibson. 
Oh my god. Get, get, call that anti-Semitic. <laughs> Let's try it together, because I need your help. I cannot be anti-Semitic alone. Oh! I'm in love with the Jew. And that's where we'll stop that. I, I mean, just watching that um, video the other night in a room probably full of about uh, 150 uh, people here in Jerusalem, it was shocking, absolutely shocking that here we had the United States of America, one of the greatest allies of the Jewish state, and at its university, using a quarter million dollar grant from the U.S. government, they have this... Uh, party, it seems, where it's dedicated towards anti-Semitic acts, a hatred towards the Jews, sowing anti-Semitism in the minds of uh, these students. This is what is happening in the United States right now. This wasn't some fringe organization. This was Duke and UNC and good old Carolinas. And this is something that has increased certainly over the past year. And that's what David Hazoni goes on to say. Here he is. What you're seeing on the campuses is only a thin slice of the anti-Semitic beast that has emerged in our public life around the world in the last six months, the last year. Okay, all of a sudden, the New York Times editorial page cartoons, all of a sudden columns, all of a sudden valedictory addresses, commencement speeches, congressional convocations, uh, politicians, all of a sudden you've got, in America, synagogues being shot up, synagogues being torched. All of a sudden, what we thought had been hidden, had gone away, has come roaring back. And that's just in the United States. In Europe, you go to Britain and the opposition party which could be giving us the next prime minister of the UK, has built a machine that is systematically, systemically anti-Semitic. On the continent, you look at the right, and there are parties that have no shame in running blatantly anti-Semitic campaigns. Okay? It is all over the place. It is suddenly emerging. And it's not coming from just one side or one issue. If I may quote, Deborah Lipstadt, the esteemed, renowned historian of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, she tweeted this out on the day, the day after the attack outside the San Diego synagogue, and on the day that the New York Times issued its initial totally inadequate uh, non-apology for the cartoon. Anti-Semitism does not come from one direction. It's on the right and on the left. If you only see it, in the opposite side of where you stand politically, then you are blind in at least one eye and turning the fight against it into a political weapon. Tonight you're going to hear a lot more examples from some of the people who are fighting in the trenches against anti-Semitism in many, many different areas, from the campuses to the media to politics. The game has changed and it's gotten real ugly. This is the reality that we face today. Anti-Semitism is increasing all across the world. It's exploding, and particularly over the last, let's say, last year. 
The last year in Europe, the last year in the United States, New York police say that hate crimes nearly doubled in 2019. This is in New York. Obviously, there's a huge uh, Jewish population in New York. They received 176 hate crime complaints from January 1, or the 1st of January to May 19th. They, that constitutes an 83% rise over the corresponding period just last year. 59% of those complaints were anti-Semitic hate crimes. So in the previous year, in that, in that, in that uh, period, there was 50 uh, hate crimes against Jews. This year, there's been 103. Double that. This is what Council Speaker Corey Johnson told the Wall Street Journal. I, can, I guess this was, I can think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he said this, We have an anti-Semitism crisis in New York. It's a national problem. But New York accounts for way too many incidents. And it is. It's a national problem. Hate crimes against Jews have increased uh, 17%, sorry, uh, across the United States. Attacks on Jews account for about 60% of all religious-based hate crimes in the United States. So 60% of hate crimes against a religious group take place against Jews. Jews. In America, of all places. And that's what this 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 uh, symposium was here to talk about. It's not the far right or the far left that's going to be engaged in anti-Semitic acts or anti-Semitic thinking or hatred of the Jews. It's in the mainstream. It's everywhere. It's become normal. It's in the universities. The politicians are talking about it. It's okay. Anti-Semitism is becoming normalized once again. And this is this is dangerous. This is a this is a new trend, or it's a really a revert trend, uh, a reverting back to the most ancient hatred. As long as there's been a human heart and the Jewish people that have existed, there has been anti-Semitism. But for the past, I would say, seventy years, or ever since World War II, and the calamity of the Holocaust, anti-Semitism was put under the rug. There was a lid put on it. But now it's coming back. It's roaring back this year. And there's an urgency attached to it as well. At this point, I'd like to go back to the symposium. And we'll hear from Dan Dyker. He's a, a fellow and senior project director at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. And he's written numerous books on BDS, uh, the Global Boycott, Divest and Sanction Israel Movement. And uh, he's an impassioned speaker, and uh, so I'll probably quote him at length here, discussing, uh, again, the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, boy, this is, uh, this, is a, this is an urgent evening. What happened? Suddenly, in the last 12 months, we started to see anti-Semitic discourse in the public square in the United States. Malcolm Honline, who many of you know, the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish uh, American Organizations, said this is the most frightening time he has experienced in his lifetime. Did it just happen suddenly? Or, or has there been a simmering hatred, demonization, dehumanization, and delegitimization of the collective Jew, of the Jewish state, that has gone unremarked? and unencountered in the, public, in, in, the, in the public space? 
Has it been so much a question of what uh, David and Tamar talked about as legitimate criticism that we haven't even noticed that anti-Semitism in its most virulent form has been creeping up behind us? Here is a fact for you. Within 20, 24 hours ago, numbers were published by the Hudson Institute of likely voters in 2020 about this photograph. When he's talking about this photograph, I'm sure you've seen it. It was this uh, photograph that appeared in the New York Times International Edition a couple of months ago, or a month ago, that depicted Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as a dog, and he was being he was leading uh, a stooped over President Donald Trump. Mr. Donald Trump was wearing a uh, kippa. There was a Star of David on Mr. Netanyahu, and it was the typical. Uh, trope of of a uh, Jewish man or, or Jewish leader leading the United States and the U.S. following behind blindly. 45% between the ages of 18 and 65 answered that they could not or would not determine that this photograph is anti-Semitic. Now that can mean a number of things, but what it certainly means, perhaps, one of the options is, We've been living with the, no the new normal, the normalization of demonization of Jews and the Jewish state. And I would argue that is the ongoing decades-old long demonization and dehumanization of the Jewish state that has been misunderstood as criticism, as political criticism, when it in truth has been the new virulent form of anti-Semitism. So what he's saying here is something that's very important that's just been given a free pass. Everyone would have said, or a lot of people would have said, that general anti-Semitic acts, anti-Jewish acts are wrong, are bad, but I'm not fighting against the Jews. I'm fighting against the state of Israel. I don't believe in Israel's politics. I'm against what is the Israeli army is doing. I don't like the IDF. And so what he's saying is this is actually a form of anti-Semitism anti-Israelism, anti-the state of Israel. Well, everyone, even at this conference, the question did come up, what is legitimate? Where is the line between uh, criticism of the state of Israel and anti-Semitism? Is there a line there? How do we know? How can we determine legitimate criticism of the state of Israel, whether that's anti-Semitic or not? Because that's what it's all being framed as now. You'd go to a number of these, these uh, uh, events and they'll say, well, I'm not anti-Semitic. I love Jews, some of them would say, but I just don't like the state of Israel. Why don't you like the state of Israel? And that's what the response was of a number of these uh, lecturers, was legitimate criticism of the state of Israel is okay if you're going after the policies of the state of Israel. It is, if you're, if you're treating Israel and tra holding Israel by the same standards that you treat every other nation, but we know that that isn't the case. If you go to the bodies of the UN, the UN General Assembly, all these other international bodies that put out recommendations for, for nations and condemn certain actions from different nations, Israel is completely targeted far more, disproportionately more than every other nation that is doing far worse things than Israel. That's anti-Semitism. Now back to Dan Dyker. The urgency of this discussion has not reached the public square. Now, if we want to understand perhaps this thesis that the hatred of the Jewish state, the new anti-Semitism, has been lurking around for decades, 
consider this. It is the BDS movement, boycott, divestments, and sanctions, that is the most virulent and newest form of anti-Semitism. It is a way of understanding anti-Semitism. Yes, I would like to say this evening without any doubt that BDS is a demonstrably anti-Semitic in substance, in intent, and in implication. And I think that we in Israel have a moral and intellectual obligation to deeply, profoundly unmask and uncover and reveal the anti-Semitic roots of this phenomenon called BDS. And yet, as Mr. Dan Dyker discusses uh, as he goes on, there, even though there should be this uh, response to BDS inside Israel, you have a, a portion of the Israeli public that is legitimizing BDS, the boycott, divest, and sanction of Israel and Israeli goods um, around the world. There was a, a really interesting um, resolution that passed through the German parliament, as he talked about, uh, on May 17th. This is where the Bundestag, de Bundestag declared that BDS was anti-Semitic. They said this, the pattern of argument and methods of the BDS movement are anti-Semitic. The international BDS campaign, known globally for its Don't Buy stickers, recalled the most terrible chapter in German history and revived memories of the Nazi motto, Don't Buy from Jews. And so that's what German parliamentarians are looking at BDS like. They're, they're saying, this seems like it's the 1930s. This seems like the law that we had where we put out that you couldn't buy from Jews or that you shouldn't buy from Jews. That's what BDS is all about. And so they passed this. They uh, passed this resolution in the German parliament a couple of weeks ago. Again, here is Dan Dyker. The comments came from left, center, and right that BDS reminded them of the Juden boycott in the 30s, beginning as we remember in 1933, which led to the destruction of 50,000 Jewish businesses in Berlin itself, which led to the mass massacre of Jews. So that that through line between incitement to murder Jews, between the justification, between the justification of destroying Jewish property and killing Jews is what informed the German decision. And guess what? There were, two, there were two letters of angry condemnation of the Germans. I get a little more time on this one. I would like an answer from somebody in the audience. Who was the first letter of condemnation of the Germans? Hamas. Okay? It was someone who actually called me a killer on TRT International. I considered that Ruben a compliment from the former head of the, uh, the, the, head of the uh, um, health service of, uh, of, of Hamas, uh, who, said, who said that uh, this did not uh, take into account uh, the, what they call the Israeli occupation, which we understand to the existence of the state of Israel. So here is the second group to send an even angrier letter. 240 Israeli and Jewish professors, men and women, who are academics in every major university in the state of Israel today and in the leading international universities abroad. 240 condemning the German decision as 
as what? As condemning it as offensive, as inappropriate, and deceitful. Those are quotes from, from 240. Well, many of you, some of you who know about Israeli academia, you know who these folks are. Zimmerman, Petersvall, uh, 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 Neve Gordon from Ben-Gurion University. You know, you can see it on the internet, 240, but it really raises a question. Are we suffering from cognitive dissonance here? What kind of a message does this send all around the world to diaspora Jewish communities? And the other question is, do these uh, academics really care? Well, in fact, what we have to mention to these academics is they're not paying attention to the very definition of anti-Semitism according to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which is the working and accepted definition in the international community today that includes denying Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, denying it as a legitimate Jewish collective. That is considered anti-Semitic today as much as Classical anti-Semitism was, uh, uh, was considered uh, for, uh, for millennia. And you know, the problem is, is, is when you have 240 Jewish and Israeli academics whitewashing BDS in total, contra in total uh, uh, contradistinction, in, in, in oppositions to what people like this, Omar Marbuti, what they're saying every day. And what you see there, when he says definitely, most definitely, we oppose a Jewish state, he means it. And if you look at any one of the BDS National Committee in Ramallah or Gaza or on any campus of the 250 campuses of the United States where Students for Justice in Palestine, a Hamas affiliate, is operating, they will agree with that statement wholeheartedly. Do you know what the problem is? You know this expression, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it'll still be, it's still a pig. But when it comes to BDS, when Jews put lipstick on a pig, people think the pig is kosher. And this is the problem that we face in the international community. Those 240 academics have pulled the rug out, in my view, from under the nation state of the Jewish people. Well, the problem of mainstreaming anti-Semitism is that it goes from the campuses to the Congress. And you know these two members of Congress, they have led the war to mainstream anti-Semitism by calling it legitimate criticism of Israel. And you know what the problem is, ladies and gentlemen, that when that when anti-Semitism and demonization of the Jewish state is a standard uh, over decades, the difference between that, between the, the, the tool of the political left in condemning the Jewish state and murdering Jews in the diaspora is a very, very short distance. Now, just listening to that, I couldn't help but, although it's a little bit off topic, just think about these academics from Jewish organizations, Jewish universities. Uh, I have a quote here of where they're from. Uh, signatories of this statement were there were 10 professors from Hebrew University, seven from Tel Aviv University, seven from Ben Gurion University, five from Haifa University. All these places are heavily subsidized by the Israeli government. And here they are writing to the German government, government condemning them for passing a, a resolution saying that BDS is anti Semitic. Can you believe that? Which, which side are they fighting for? Which side are they on? It reminds me of uh, just in the archaeological field, field where some of the most anti-Bible scholars in the archaeological field come right out of Israel. And what are they doing? They're koshering a pig. It's a pig. Anti-Semitism is evil. BDS is evil. Hatred of the Jews is evil. But you have... Uh, in Israel, academics that are 
giving it a pass, giving BDS a pass, and actually condemning those other governments that would stand up for the state of Israel and call anti-Semitism what it is. That's quite shocking. Now, where does this anti-Semitism come from? Where does the hatred of the Jewish people come from? And is it concerning that it's on the rise throughout the world? Of course it is. Sometimes we have a view of of history and anti-Semitism has been confined to uh, Germany in the lead up to World War II, but that that wasn't the case. Uh, it It was in vogue across Europe, Britain, and even the United States before World War II. This is what William Manchester wrote in his book, The Last Lion. This was about this period just before World War II. The martyrdom of the Jews in the 1940s would strip anti-Semitism of its respectability. But in the 1930s, it was quite an ordinary thing to see restaurants, hotels, clubs, beaches, and residential neighborhoods barred to people with what were delicately called, quote, dietary requirements. Contempt for Jews was not considered bad form. In Britain, before World War II. They were widely regarded as unlovable, alien, loudmouth, flashy people who enriched themselves at the expense of Gentiles. Ladies wore bracelets with swastika charms. Young men combed their hair slant across their foreheads. End quote. That's the way it was in Britain before World War II. Not by everybody. But certainly there was a mainstreaming of anti-Semitism. Our editor, uh, managing editor, Mr. Brad McDonald, wrote an article, Anti-Semitism, why you, should be an al- by, why you Should Be Alarmed. I'm going to leave it in the show notes for you to read today so you can see more of the depth of the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism and what the Bible says about the future of anti-Semitism. There is coming a time when it's going to be all over, all done, finally. Finally, after thousands and thousands of years, there will be no more anti-Semitism. It won't exist. It'll be destroyed. But for the near term, for the near future, it is set to increase. I really do want to encourage you to read that article, Anti-Semitism, Why You Should Be Alarmed. That's all I have time for today on today today's show. Thank you very much for listening in. Thank you also to Miss Eleanor Clark, the newest member of the Watch Jerusalem team, who put together a lot of the research here on this uh, subject of anti-Semitism. If you'd like to send some feedback on the program, you can do so by writing your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Don't forget to sign up for the monthly magazine Watch Jerusalem there on our website. Take care and I'll see you next week.